So we'll open our Bibles, please, back to Acts chapter 8. Toward the last of this chapter, there's a certain little statement that really gripped my mind as I was reading from this chapter the other day. The verse number 39, as a, as a whole, it says this, And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. Then it's these words, And he went on his way rejoicing. And that is my text for uh, this meeting tonight. He went on his way rejoicing. Now the narrative in the book of Acts is punctuated with many references to the conversions of sinners. And many of these references are collective in nature with regard to the huge numbers of people who were very often saved and brought to know the Lord Jesus Christ in those apostolic times. We read, of course, in Acts 2 of the 3,000 or thereabouts who were saved on the day of Pentecost. We read in Acts chapter 4 these words, Many believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. We read in Acts chapter 5, 14, And believers were added uh, to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women. Or Acts 6 verse 7, A great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Acts 21 and verse number 20 where we read these words, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands, and the word thousands there literally reads myriads, how many myriads of Jews there are which believe. Now those references are proof of the marvelous work of the Holy Spirit in apostolic times in the conversion of sinners or precious souls. Right across the known world of that day, indeed, huge companies of people were gathered into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so we're able to read of all this when we go through the book of Acts. And that means it's not possible to give any further details, and I mean in the sacred narrative, of these instances of multiplied conversions, all the names or case details or people's testimonies. It would be obvious to us that space would not allow all of that detail to be recorded for us with regard to these uh, conversions that took place. But through the book of Acts also, the Lord has seen fit to record for us and give a fuller picture on the conversion of some individuals. And one of them is in this passage that I have read with you. This man, the Ethiopian eunuch. I think of Psalm 68 and verse 31, because there we have a prophecy. It goes like this, Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God. And there is no doubt that the conversion of this man was part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. God saved this man on his way home to Ethiopia. Therefore, with his conversion, Christianity was introduced, we would certainly believe, into the vast African empire. And from that point onwards, that became a vital step in the Lord's plan to have the gospel go into the entire world. In considering the conversion of this eunuch, 
I want to focus your minds on those closing words of verse number 39. And he went on his way rejoicing. These words refer to this individual. We meet him in this chapter only. He appears on the scene, on the page, very, very suddenly, and then he disappears just as quickly. But though he's never seen again or ever read of again in the Word of God, due to these closing words of verse 39, it's impossible to forget this man. Indeed, the whole story is impossible to forget if you read it and think about it and dwell on it. But especially these words, he went on his way rejoicing. In other words, here is the send-off from the page of Holy Scripture that the Holy Spirit gives this man, this blessed individual. This is how it's put. He went on his way rejoicing. They are striking words. They are unforgettable words because they sum up that the Ethiopian eunuch departs from the stage of Scripture saved by grace, converted to God, indicated by this observation. He went on his way rejoicing. You can see him go. He's a chariot traveler. I don't know who else uh, accompanied him or what the number might have been, but undoubtedly was maybe a sizable number of people. But all attention's on him. He went on his way rejoicing. And the words indicate that he went on his way a converted man, a man whose life had suddenly been turned around that day. And that, of course, is the nature of true conversion. And so we're going to come to look at this theme tonight under those words, on his way rejoicing, on his way rejoicing. And you know, folks, that began a rejoicing in that man's heart that continued right through the rest of his life and has not stopped since. Because where is he tonight? He's in the glory. He's in heaven. And he's still rejoicing. Oh, just catch the note of that. You who sit here tonight who are not saved and you can't rejoice, you can't really sing. You may go through the words, you may bring forth sounds from the page of the hymn book and maybe you are an excellent singer. But let me ask you a question. When this meeting is over, will you go on your way rejoicing really and truly as this man did about 2,000 years ago as he left that place where he'd been baptized and away he went. And as I say, we never hear of him again. And now we have these words that signal his departure. He went on his way rejoicing. I look at them from three angles. We have here the contrast with his previous spiritual condition. Because when we first meet this man back there in verse 26 and 27, well, he's not rejoicing at all. Uh, Rather, we find that he's a man who is covered, we might say, with a morbid cloud and with a deep sense of, of need within his soul, within his heart, but he's certainly not rejoicing. We're introduced to him there, as I say in verse number 27, and there are different little details there that make him a very interesting individual. Notice how it begins in verse 27. 
uh, with regard to this man, this Ethiopian eunuch. It says, he arose and went. That's Philip the evangelist. He arose and went. Then it says this, and behold, behold. I just want you to stop there. That's a very common word in the New Testament and, of course, in the Old Testament. But here in the New Testament, the word behold comes from the verb that means to see. And it's a very, very strong word. It calls attention to what may be seen or heard or mentally grasped. And so the Holy Spirit wants you to stop, as it were, whatever your thought processes may be at this moment, He wants you to set all aside that may be going through your mind because we can carry into God's house thoughts of the world, carnal fleshly thoughts, our minds somewhere else altogether. And God wants you to stop tonight. Stop thinking that way. Stop dwelling on yourself. Stop dwelling on the world around you. And look at this man. That's what the Spirit of God wants you to do. That's the sense of the word behold. And so, in this sacred record, the Holy Spirit signifies to the reader that he's to give very close attention to this man of Ethiopia. Behold, a man of Ethiopia. But we're not asked to view him with regard to anything about his physical appearance. Really, we're asked to view him with regard to the need of his heart and the need of his life. There are many things there that are a number of things there that are mentioned in verse number 27. It's a very revealing verse. He's a man with great authority. It tells us that. A eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He was a man also of great ability because he was the treasurer of her kingdom. He was a man with great aspirations because there's something about him that draws our attention in that he has been to Jerusalem to worship. But none of his authority or his ability or even his spiritual aspirations could make him happy. As I said, he's not rejoicing at this stage at all. As I also said, there's a cloud over him. And so it's to this man that our eyes and our hearts and our minds are drawn Every detail here reveals that prior to the moment at the end of the story, he went on his way rejoicing. Prior to that moment, there was nothing in this man's life over which he could rejoice. Nothing at all. With all his authority, all his ability, and even his religious aspirations, there was absolutely nothing found in this man's life in which he could rejoice. That comes out in various ways as you read on and you study him carefully. He was a devout man. He was not a Jew by birth, but he was what you call a proselyte or a convert to the Jewish religion. And various little bits of information show how devout he actually had become after his conversion to Jewish religion, to to Judaism. He worshipped, we're told in verse 27, And we believe since he's gone up to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple to worship, he's not an idolater. He has been turned to the true God. He's been brought to know something of the real God, the living God, the true God. So he's not an idolater. He doesn't worship images. 
That's part of the fact that he is a devout man. He worships God. He was orthodox in his belief because he accepted the Scriptures. He's reading God's Word from the Old Testament. And obviously what he reads, he believes, though he cannot understand it, so he's orthodox. He's not some kind of an inquirer who's simply reading the Word of God to mock at it or to find holes in it. Of course, there are none, but that's what the mocker thinks. No, he's not that kind of a person. He believes that this is the Word of God. He's orthodox in his approach to the Scriptures. He's very sincere in his desires because he's a long way from home. And remember, that his reason for leaving Ethiopia and going up to Jerusalem was actually to worship. And so distance meant nothing to him, and difficulties meant nothing to him. And we could even say dangers to travel in a chariot. All those hundreds of miles in that day was no small thing. And from all that you and I learn, he was a most earnest man. Reading the Word of God, wasting no time. He was in dead earnest about spiritual things, but he was not saved. See, commendable qualities like these that I've mentioned do not save. You read of various people in the Gospels, and the Lord dealt with them, and they stand out as the record is given to us. People who could quote the commandments, people who were very devout in their own place and so on, and yet they were not saved. And some of them, when they were challenged by the Lord, like the rich young ruler, when the Lord eventually put His finger on the rich young ruler's sin, the sin of covetousness, because he loved his money, he had great riches, but in his heart there was no place for repentance and no place for turning away from sin. And for that reason, he went away very unhappy because he was not prepared to bow to the Lord and he was unhappy because he therefore forfeited what he thought would buy him favor with God, all his religion, all his devotion, all his... Uh, spiritual activities. But you see, the chapter there in Luke and other Gospels too tell us that that young man went away still lost. I say to you again that commendable qualities do not save. You see, the point is made here for us that a dead religion is a joyless religion. The eunuch could never have gone on his way rejoicing based on his devotion to a system that couldn't save. He had been to Jerusalem. He had been to the temple. But remember this. He has been among those who have rejected Christ. He's been among those who crucified Christ. And therefore, he heard nothing there, and nothing was presented to him in any shape or fashion that would have helped his soul. He was in the midst of a religious arena that was devoid of joy, a system that could not save him. And he discovered that his journey was fruitless, it was pointless. The temple, its worship, etc., could not answer his questions, could do nothing for him. You see, my dear friend, 
The Bible teaches you and me where true happiness is found. And it's not found in a dead religion or a Christless religion. It is found in Christ. And one of the greatest statements to that effect is Psalm 32. And that's why I read from, uh, from Romans 4 tonight, the first reading in this meeting. Because in Romans 4, Paul quotes from Psalm 32 those wonderful words among others, Blessed is the man. And remember that the word blessed literally means, Oh, the happiness is of the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, happy is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. I show you those words, I quote those words, because true joy, true happiness that this man displayed as he left the scene that day, it begins when we discover the great doctrine of the forgiveness of sin and having that sin covered over, and there is only one power, there's only one virtue that will cover a man's sin, and that is the blood of the Lamb. And so note that. What a contrast between how the scene ends and how it began. At the very beginning, he's a devout man, but he's in misery. Then he's also a disillusioned man. As I said, he had been to the temple, but obviously he's still searching. He discovered, therefore, that that whole exercise left him disillusioned. He had not found peace. He had not found rest. And the reason is that Christ is not to be found in the religion of Judaism, of Judaism or in any other dead religion. Now, Judaism had its priesthood. It had its ceremonies. It had its ornate buildings. It had its animal sacrifices. It had its system of feasts. But none of that secured for this man what he left the scene with when he went on his way rejoicing. He had been there, but he went away deeply disillusioned with what he found. Many ways we can see in this man something of the Apostle Paul's statement. If you'll turn quickly to Philippians 3 and look with me and listen to what Paul had to say in this passage, Philippians 3, and he gives us religious pedigree from verse 5 on down through the following verses, and he tells us that with all that he did and all to which he gave attention with regard to the Judaism of his day and his fathers, he discovered it was all worthless, all useless. If you look with me there at verse number 7, he says this, What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. He discovered that they had no value whatsoever compared with Christ. Verse number 8, he says, Doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Now listen to this. And do count them but dung that I may win Christ. What's he saying there? He's saying that everything that he had held dear, that he believed would save him and give him a righteousness before God was only one big heap of rubbish. That's the sense of the word, a heap of rubbish. 
because there was nothing of Christ in it. And so all that he clung to, he regarded as being worthless, as worthless as a heap of rubbish, devoid of any saving power. I don't know what it is you might be seeking after to try to find some peace in your soul, some joy in your heart. Your life may be at a point where things are very joyless and very unhappy you are, even maybe very miserable. And you're trying this and trying that. I've met people like that. The world is actually full of people like that who, who find an emptiness within them. They're disillusioned in many, many ways and in many counts. And they start to read religious material and spiritual books. And as they read and they study and they peruse, they find that the emptiness only deepens and widens and increases. And there's nothing there to meet the need of their souls. You know why? They're looking in all the wrong places. The wrong places. And I tell you tonight, until you get your mind turned away from everything else to Jesus Christ, you will remain not only like this man, devout, but his religion was empty. But you'll be disillusioned, you'll be disappointed. It will not provide you any joy. He was a darkened man. Because we find that Philip's question was to him in verse number 30, Understandest thou what thou readest? There he is reading the Word of God from the book of Isaiah, as we would say at chapter 53, those wonderful verses, 7 and 8, he's reading there. But he hasn't a clue what it means. And he confesses that in verse 31. How can I except some man should guide me? And you know, there is the first little chink of light. How can I understand this except some man should guide me? What has he begun to realize? He has begun to realize at least that there are men given by God to explain the Scriptures and give to poor darkened sinners an understanding of something that is on the page or what the Word of God actually means. And so here's a man who is still in his darkness and I would say to you tonight, my dear friend, be alarmed about that. Because as you are in your present spiritual state, your mind is darkened. You've got a deceitful heart. It prevents you from grasping the Word of God. You might come and go from these very seats, and, and some of you do. Sunday night after Sunday night, you come in, you go out. And it seems that nothing has made an impression on you. I want to address sinners very directly sitting here tonight. You come and you go from the house of the holy. And you hear the Word of God. It's explained to you. It's presented to you. But you seem to go out as dark as you come in through the doors. And you need to be alarmed about that. Because that's a revelation of the state of your heart. It's also a revelation of the work of the devil. Because the devil is described as the one who blinds the minds of those who 
will not come to Christ, will not obey the gospel, will not rest in God's Son. The devil then works there. Oh, he has got fertile soil in which to work. You're already deceived. You're already darkened. You won't listen. You go your way. You may say to yourself, all the excuses, next Sunday night, or maybe one of these days, I'll think about this, or I'll get saved. Oh, I know what it's like. But you see, the next Sunday comes around, and it's just the same old story. Your heart's darkened. It's deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. The devil is working, and it's not hard for him to do it because he's got, as I said, fertile soil in your case. And it's, it's very simple for the devil to keep sowing the seeds or even snatching away. I mean, the seeds of doubt and the seeds of unbelief or, on the other hand, snatching away the good seed of the Word as the Lord warns us about in the parable of the sower. And so, here you are, you're darkened, you're like this man. You see, my dear friend, you've got to understand tonight that what you need is Christ in your heart. Because the Bible says that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's what you need. You need the Spirit of God living in your soul. You need the Holy Ghost to bring Christ home to your heart and show you who He is and what He has done and work there in your soul so that you will become a new man, a new woman, a new young person. That is what you need, friend. This is why you have no joy, no happiness in your life. You're just like the eunuch. I may say as well before I leave him at this stage, he was, yes, a distressed man. He was spiritually distressed because he, though he was devout, was disillusioned and still in darkness. And therefore, he is concerned. He's searching, he's reading, he's wondering how he can find the answer to the needs of his heart. Evidently, the Lord was at work. That's very obvious because the man eventually is saved. He goes on his way rejoicing. But the point is, the Lord was at work in him, causing him to be distressed over his state. And therefore, when you think about that, you get an insight into what must happen in the hearts and lives of lost, poor, guilty souls. They need to experience what the folk experienced on the day of Pentecost. Now when they were pricked in their hearts, what did they do? They cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Let me ask you, friend, is there any distress in your soul about your spiritual state? You see, before this man could go on his way rejoicing, he had to come through all this. Yes, devout, but disillusioned, darkened, put into a state of great distress. That was God's way of breaking him down and dealing with him. And therefore, he was ready. For what came next? 
And I'm asking you tonight, are you concerned? Are you troubled? Maybe a young person sitting here, an older person, maybe even a little boy or girl, are you troubled and distressed? You're not an Ethiopian eunuch. You're not in the same category as this man in many, many ways. But like him, you've got a soul that needs to be saved. You've got a life that needs to be delivered. You need to be changed, dear man, woman, young person, little child. If you're going to go in your way rejoicing, something has to happen. And may God do it tonight. So that brings me to this. We've seen the condition that he was in at the very start of the situation here. But then look at the counsel that he was given. That takes us on, you see, because Philip's a skilled evangelist. He asks a question. Understandest thou what thou readest? And that opened up the door. And in a minute or two, or whatever it took, he's up on that chariot. He's sitting beside this individual. And notice what happens. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same Scripture and preached unto him Jesus. The word preach there is that lovely word in the original language of the New Testament that means to announce the glad tidings. And notice what it's immediately followed by. He announced the glad tidings, Jesus. That's how it reads. That's the emphasis. Just see it in verse 35. He preached. It means he announced the glad tidings. And then you've got the word Jesus. And my friend, that sums it up. That name means Savior. Notice this carefully. You cannot experience the joy that can come into the soul unless you're brought to the Savior of sinners. And this Savior to whom the Ethiopian eunuch was turned and, and whom he was shown. He's the scriptural Savior because verse 32 says it. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a lamb or a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before a shear, so opened he not his mouth. None it goes into verse number uh, 32 or 33. Ah, my friend, we all know those words just about every one of us. That well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 53, I've mentioned it, here it is, and he's shown that Christ is the subject of the Bible. Christ is the Christ of the Bible. He's the one at the very center of God's divine revelation. And so the one who's brought to the eunuch's mind is the one who has been revealed by God and divine writ, the only Savior, the only one with the power to save, the one of whom Peter once said, as we read in Acts 4, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men. Notice those words, no other name under heaven given among men. Christ's name According to Acts 4.12, has been revealed from heaven unto men. 
He's divinely presented in the Word of God, and therefore He's given a name that that signifies what He came to do. He is the scriptural Savior, but He's also the sinless Savior. Notice there the reference to the sheep, the reference to the lamb. And what was the qualification for the sheep or the lamb, or even the goat or the bullock? That that creature would have no spot or no blemish signifying the sinlessness of our blessed Redeemer. And so he preached unto him Jesus, the scriptural Savior. He preached unto him Jesus, the sinless Savior. Why? What was so important about that? Oh, how wonderful that the Holy Spirit had led that eunuch to read there. He could have read anywhere in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is now complete before the days of Philip or the Lord himself. It was completed under Malachi, finished and closed and fully available to the folk of that day. And therefore, the eunuch could have been reading in any part of the Old Testament, but God had led him to Isaiah 53. Why? Because this man needs to meet Christ. He wasn't reading about the animal sacrifices in Leviticus or the ceremonies of religion in Numbers. He's reading directly and immediately about the Christ of God in Isaiah chapter 53, the sinless Savior, and he's being shown that Christ will have no spot or no blemish in his character, in his person. And the reason why that is so important is that it is the Lord's sinlessness that gives value to his blood, to his saving merit. It's his own sinlessness that does that. And I tell you tonight, sinner, Christ is a scriptural and a sinless Savior. Let me say something more. A suffering Savior led as sheep to the slaughter. That's what he's reading. And there's no doubt that Philip really opened up to this man said to him something like this, do you know that just a few years ago this scripture was fulfilled? Do you know that there was a man called Jesus of Nazareth who came into the world, who walked in my nation among my people and he had no sin and he did no sin, he knew no sin and he could not sin? but he was a scriptural Savior, the sinless Savior. And then he said, you know what they did with that man? They nailed him to a tree. They crucified him. And then he just said to him, but you know, that was the will of God. Because someone must die and pay the price for you and me, Philip would have said to this man. And Christ has died, and died a horrible death. Not only physically, in terms of his pain, but also with regard to the wrath of God coming down over his soul. And I have no doubt that Philip made it absolutely clear. You know, there are two Philips in the New Testament, just say in passing. There's Philip the Apostle, and there's Philip the Evangelist. And this is Philip the Evangelist. This is not the Apostle. This is Philip the Evangelist. 
And he knows what he's talking about. He has been called to be an evangelist, to go one-on-one as he's doing here or preach to multitudes like he did in Samaria. But he knows what he's talking about. He knows the book. He can explain it. He understands it. But I believe above everything else what it has shown the eunuch was he is a satisfying Savior. That is, he has fully satisfied divine justice. Ah, my friend, that's the thing. What are you going to do about facing the God of wrath? How are you going to contend with the everlasting burnings that are impending, that come down so quickly upon men? How are you going to deal with the wrath of God, sinner? Because you are headed to taste it, to to experience it. And what you need to realize is, thank God, there's a Christ, there's a Savior who tasted it. As it says in Hebrews, He tasted death, who has tasted wrath for a sinner like you. Paying the price, making the atonement, satisfying divine justice, so that God Almighty, though infinitely holy and infinitely just, is able to forgive men because he has been satisfied and does not adulterate his justice or his holiness. He can forgive freely and willingly because Christ has made satisfaction unto God for sin. Now do you understand why this man went on his way rejoicing? As we view him, as I said there earlier, first of all, we saw him with regard to the contrast with his previous state. And now we're seeing him with regard to the counsel that he received. And so the outcome is he goes on his way rejoicing. But then in closing, there's the confidence that he declared. Because the closing scenes here in Acts chapter 8 show an entirely different man from the one who appears at the beginning of the story as I've been outlining all along here. If you look at verse number 37, here he declares his confidence. Philip said, he's challenging the man, he uh, he says there in verse 26, look at it, just or 36, look at it. The eunuch actually says, See, here is water. And obviously Philip had covered the subject of baptism. And now he says, look, here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? You know what he means by that? He's saying to Philip, I'm saved. I'm ready now to be baptized. That's what he means. And so Philip challenges him again. Look at verse 37, and he says to the man, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's his confession of faith. And Philip, on the basis of that that confession, he baptizes the eunuch. And what I see there is that he exhibits confidence in Jesus Christ. And you know, along with what he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, there's something else to notice. 
The man who led him to the Lord then disappeared. Do you see that? It says there in verse 39, when they were come out of the water, when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. The preacher's gone. And he's gone very dramatically. It was actually a miraculous thing. Philip was just lifted away out of there. Why did the Lord do that? To teach that man, it wasn't Philip who saved you. It wasn't his action in baptizing you that saved you. I saved you. And so he's left all on his own. But he goes on his way rejoicing. Why? Because his confidence is in Christ. And Christ is the one who saved him and kept him, as I said earlier, and brought him home to heaven at some point. And he's with the Lord forever. Philip's in heaven too. They're both there rejoicing around the throne. The one who was the evangelist and the other who was the convert. But both of them, their eyes are on Christ. And the confidence that both men had in Jesus Christ when they were together in this scene and the jail or the eunuch was saved, that confidence never left them. It never does. We can be confident in Christ from the moment we are saved until the moment we go home and then we see Him and we're with Him and we'll never be out of His presence forever. And my friend, there's nothing in the world in terms of a religion or a spiritual philosophy that can give you that confidence except the gospel of God. And so here we are. We have watched this man. He went on his way rejoicing. We have looked at what happened. The contrast with the beginning of the story, the counsel that he got, the confidence that he exhibited, and now we've got the answer. Why did he go on his way rejoicing? But again, I challenge you, how will you leave the house of God tonight? Will you go with happiness in your heart? True happiness, I mean, because your sins are forgiven and your peace with God, or will you leave this house tonight still? Well, whatever way you come in, but this, leaving aside the details, leaving the house tonight, the house of God, not saved, not forgiven, no peace, still on the wrong road, in danger of hell. What an awful way to leave God's house. As you sit on your seat there now, wherever you are, why not just bow your soul and cry to the Lord as this eunuch would have done. Put your trust in Christ and go on your way rejoicing. I will be available by the Lord's table.
But if you're in deep enough earnest about your soul, you stay. You just sit there in your seat and watch the Lord's table being conducted. And then we can talk afterwards. My friend, it's time you were saved. It actually may be that you know this full well, and it's true, you can't partake of these emblems because you're not saved. That's a sermon all on its own. You know that. But that can change. Let us bow in prayer. May the Holy Spirit write His word on hearts tonight. And as we come to the end of the meeting, uh, may I just say to the whole congregation that when we come to the time now for the table, let's observe due reverence as much as we possibly can and have your children under control that we might leave the house of God quietly, reverently, and those who are remaining and I trust that many of you will, uh, will be able to do so in that fitting atmosphere. Father in heaven, write thy word on our hearts. Bless it to every soul. Use it tonight for thy glory. Draw sinners to the Lamb. Save them for time and eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. And for Jesus' sake, amen.